so we have a very special guest today. Uh, doesn't need a lot of introduction. Many of you know him, uh, Matt Merrill, senior pastor at uh, Bethany uh, Christian Church in Washington, Indiana. And if you know anything about Matt, um, he's a guy that's dedicated to his church. Um, he's uh, one of the great, I, I feel, one of the great young leaders within the restoration movement. Um, in fact, it was a couple of years ago that uh, uh, at Solomon Foundation, we had two board members uh, in their late 70s that were ro rolling off and we had one open seat and I made the decision to search the country um, for three young leaders under 40. Uh, had a list of six or seven uh, that I brought to the board of Solomon Foundation. And I said, we're going young. And one of the people that we added was Matt. Uh, and Matt's been a great addition to our board. Uh, lots of energy, uh, lots of opinions, which is good and just lots of interaction in, in what we're doing at, at the Solomon Foundation. And he's grown a great ministry. Um, you know, for anyone that knows any, anything about uh, the ministry at, uh, at, at, uh, in Washington, Indiana and beyond, now that they have some uh, satellites, um, is it's not like it's a metropolitan area of a million people. Uh, in fact, I think uh, Bethany, or I should say Washington, Indiana is probably a town of 12,000 people, max. And uh, I believe that campus pre-COVID was running 14 to 1600 people. So you put that in perspective, uh, that's, that's an amazing ministry. So Matt, welcome, um, glad to have you with us. It's always uh, um, a joy to have you with us. So uh, just kind of share from your heart what's happening at, uh, at Bethany right now, um, and and what your challenges have really been during COVID. Yeah, we'll start with the good and the bad. Thanks for having me, Doug, and I appreciate your leadership. Renee, thanks for the ask of being on here, and uh, it's so good to see so many wonderful friends in ministry. Um, the good things that are happening right now is we're seeing a lot of uh, growth uh, within numerical growth. We just added a campus um, in October and to a little town of 8,000 called uh, Princeton, Indiana, and it's doing well. And we just uh, bought a building last week for permanency. So we're really excited about getting them a place to call their own. Uh, they've been meeting in a, in a movie theater. Um, but we've seen uh, large numeric growth within our Vincennes campus and our Washington, which is our, our original campus. Um, our original campus, Washington, is closing in on 1,800 in attendance right now. So uh, we're, we've overcome all of our COVID stuff and uh, we're looking for another phase three additional stuff. If Uncle Doug has some money, we're looking for phase three. Uncle Doug, what do you say about that? Yeah, right. There's always money. Right. Sure. And um, so those are the goods. I mean, you know, anything can grow. Even bad things can grow. And I don't want to, you know, set that up as just the numbers are, are the tag. But there's been some awesome ministry that's been conducted. And I think strategically well, you know, planned out to get out of. COVID and to get into a position where we can uh, really thrive and uh, see not just numerical growth, but uh, a, a disciple making growth, which has come to the forefront of our ministry. And uh, we've put a lot of uh, emphasis on, on making disciples and getting people to the core and uh, get them away from the fringe. 
things that are not going well, our children's ministry really suffered at one of our campuses, which we were kind of shocked about at our largest campus, it suffered. And um, we're finally starting to get that under control and, and put some uh, fingers in the hole of that, that dam that, that had, had broke. And it's going to take a lot to get there, but, um, you know, it's kind of in maintenance mode coming out of COVID. And I think if you guys were to do a really healthy assessment of all of your ministries and find out the vitals of your ministries, you'll probably find there's one or two that didn't come out of it well. And I don't think you can just go by the tail of the tape of just saying, hey, generally we're 18% up or, you know, we're this or that. And you're just kind of doing a total of all numbers. Um, I think you got to get a little deeper into the weeds and, and see that there's probably some lags, just like there would be in business. There's just going to be things that are lagging behind. And for us, um, it was our children's ministry, which was is really lagging behind. And uh, we were kind of uh, shocked to see that, trying to resource that better. Um, you know, we, we took a break for about 16 months in our leadership pipeline, and we're feeling the effects of that. You know, it's, uh, uh, we, we are about 16, 18 months behind in our plan and uh, of strategy to relieve some of our current leaders that have ran hard for years, for decades. And um, we're just, we're just, there's some things that are lagging because of, of COVID, but I don't want to blame COVID necessarily. It's just a matter, you know, we kind of snapped some things off um, intentionally and we did, we, and we did stuff that uh, we probably shouldn't have stopped. Also uh, the leadership pipeline stuff, we shouldn't have stopped that. We could have done that via zoom. It wasn't what we wanted, but it was what we could have done. And, and I think there were some things that I look back in, in my leadership that said, ah, you, you probably chopped some things off too quickly. Talk to us a little bit about uh, kind of uh, your leadership pipeline, how you develop that. It sounds like that's something you've got to really hone in on right now. So uh, living, living in a small town environment um, where you don't have a lot of you know, Fortune 500 CEOs and people like that, high capacity leaders. Tell us how, how you develop leaders at, uh, at Bethany. Yeah, number one, I think you have to strip away what, what has thought to have been a leader in the church. You know, living in a rural community, there is kind of this misunderstanding of what leadership looks like within a church. And, you know, it's kind of that authoritarian leadership that prevails within a, a rural setting or maybe even a, a small church. And uh, you kind of have to strip that all down and get back to what, what a deacon is in, in the context biblically and what an elder is and contextually biblically, and then and move from there. And then even establish, well, what are all these people that we call pastors and ministers? Um, and so it turns into a whole new definition. And so I think it's a paradigm change that really starts. So it, it starts with I don't want to call it reprogramming, but it starts with just that paradigm change of getting a new mentality, what church leadership looks like. We figured it out that, that for us, it takes uh, about three years to get that done. And so uh, I've been in a process with about 70, what we pinpoint as leaders, um, starting with what we would have uh, classes of like 101, 201, 301, 401. And those are designed. And now I'm, I'm with... Um, about 14 of those guys that I just meet with every six weeks on Saturday morning for a good two hours. And we just talk what, uh, what would come up in elders meetings, doctrine, uh, church disciplines, um, issues as it relates to, to staffing and um, encouragement. And uh, right now we're in a position where 
uh, I've been asked by our, our elders, and this is awesome, to get six of those guys in our in the in our meetings, uh, just so they can start rub shoulders with those guys. And I think they're just ready to hand the baton off anyway. But there's a whole there's a whole plan of development that has to be made. Leaders don't happen by accident. You don't create leaders by accident. I know uh, last time uh, we interviewed you, uh, Matt, well, I think it's probably been a year or so ago, you you talked a lot about how you're an introvert and how uh, that's a, a challenge for you at times and and uh, that you were launching a plan to, to get out and, and take uh, leaders to lunch or breakfast or have a meal with them once a month or every six weeks, eight weeks. Um, how's that plan going for you? Hey, that, that's been the best thing I could have done. If it's on my schedule, I'm going to do it, even if I don't want to do it. Um, and so we have um, a rotation of meeting with our staff, a uh, rotation of meeting with our teams that they'll come over to my house and, and we'll interact personally rather than uh, professionally. Uh, we do that with our elders as well, a time just to get together personally rather than uh, in the boardroom. And I think that there's an importance to uh, having your elders. They don't have to be close friends, but they need to know you in a personal manner where they, they know your wife, they know your kids, um, they, know, they know a little bit of your struggles, they, they know the ins and outs of your life. And I think the longer you've been, listen, I've been here for 20, 21 years now, they, they know me. They're not, there's nothing that you know, I'm going to scare them about. But uh, I think there can be a little bit of a hesitancy to do that. Maybe when you're at a church for two or three years, uh, you might have to put up your guard just a little bit. But um, you know, I think there needs to be uh, a relationship that's formed outside of the outside of the boardroom or whatever you guys meet. Um, and it's, it's been going well, Doug. I mean, just to get away from the professional side of things, get into the, the personal side of things. Uh, they, they see you not as a boss and they see you not as a lead. They see you as a person. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I remember that interview that we did uh, a yeah. year or so ago, and it was a powerful message that you gave. And so I'm really glad to hear things are going well um, on that. Talk a little bit about staffing. You know, how, how, how do you get staff to come to rural Indiana? Yeah. My Achilles heel staffing has been for 18 years. Um, it is really hard. It is really hard to get them to come to a rural environment, especially where we don't, we're not a satellite or a bedroom community of any major city. So uh, if you look at the map and you type in Washington, Indiana, you're going to see we're an hour away from any kind of real place that has a Starbucks or a Chick-fil-A or a mall. And that's always the first thing that's brought up by the spouses. Hey, how close is the nearest Starbucks or how close is the nearest Target? And we say, we don't have those. Uh, we don't have things like that around here. And um, so there's a drawback to that. So you have to, you know, a healthy staff is an attractive staff. And that's been one of our, our major plays is when we get people on site and when we can get them on site, if we can get them on site, we know we'll win. Uh, and we're not going to win them with our community. We're not going to win them with our housing. We're not, <laughs> not going to win them with the landscape. Uh, but we can win them with the health because not too many uh, pastors are, have ever been in a healthy environment. And when they come to a healthy environment and a, and a true healthy staff, not fictitious or uh, healthy in some aspects, but across the board, it's refreshing. And it's so refreshing that it's almost liberating to them. And they will take that, that, that feeling of freedom and refreshing and walk away from maybe something that's bigger or maybe more resource, or even walk away from a greater salary with benefits to be healthy personally 
and to be in a position where they can actually prosper. I am so shocked on how many pastors are in positions where they're just constantly hitting their head on a level of like a lid, but it's not a lid they've placed on themselves. It's a lid that the organization has placed on them and they feel stuck and they don't feel that anybody in upper echelon leadership is helping them or guiding them or, or allowing them to be creative or do the next thing. And so there's a real opportunity for churches that are healthy, regardless of size uh, and regardless of location uh, for, to get, you know, sevens and tens uh, in, in that scale of, of great leaders and, and pastors. But it's been hard to get bit. those guys. Yeah. Tell us a little bit uh, about your process of disciple making um, and, and what you're doing at uh, Bethany to reach more people. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll talk to you about it a little bit, but I'm kind of removed from it because um, I'm not good at it. And uh, so I found some guys who were good at it. And so we built up that team and there's about five that are on that team to um, have a, a consistent line of disciple making and not discipleship, but disciple making and disciples who can go and make disciples, the Bobby Harrington definition of disciple making. And um, they have started small and they started to work up uh, from things like Rooted. And I don't know if you guys have uh, done any of that Rooted experience stuff, but that's kind of an introductory to uh, our disciple making pathway. And from there, it just begins to um, spur off into to other kinds of uh, disciple making things, whether it's uh, uh, certain small groups or whether it's a, a celebrate recovery of some kind where they're working through some kind of hurt or habit or hang up, um, whether that is uh, a, what we'd call like a, a, a discipleship group where it's not about uh, social engagement like a small group would be, but it's actually about diving deeper into the text and working through some things with greater accountability than what you'd find in a typical community group or small group. Um, and so some of these have been developed by our team and others have been developed by uh, people in our congregation, just thirsty. And what I appreciate most about the disciple making ministers on our team is that they recognize there's not a one size fit all approach to it. And, um, and so they've, they've done well of trying to get everybody engaged regardless of where they're at in, in the spectrum of their faith. And, uh, I don't know. I, I would love to be able to set aside a process and say it works from A to Z, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's it's really a unique uh, unique challenge, I think, to every church and in, in, in how you uh, go through that process. Um, we're going to open it up here for uh, questions. You can put them in the chat room here, um, and uh, or if you want to unmute and ask a question of Matt, we'll, we'll uh, open it up for questions uh, direct here. So feel free to unmute and ask a question. Let's see, I got one here in the chat room. Is this from Dave Hamlin? Uh, uh, what things do you cut too soon that you mentioned earlier? Well, you know, Dave, when, when, um, <clears throat> when we were told to, you know, hunker down and, and, uh, and to kind of stop our services for a while. We didn't just stop services at Bethany. We didn't, we, we stopped everything. And I don't know how you guys rolled in Kentucky, but we stopped everything. Um, you know, we, we even had uh, our elders meetings were, were few and far between as well. Um, and then we started to rev some things back up, but it, but it became hard to do via Zoom. Uh, and what I was really 
you know, narrowing down on in that day was um, I shouldn't have stopped the leadership pipeline things. I should have kept that together, should have kept those 70 connected in some way, uh, whether that was through Zoom or some other kind of uh, way to, uh, you know, teach or, or just to, to mentor. Um, and I just didn't. Uh, we just kind of felt like that was something that needed to be done in person, uh, but it probably, it probably didn't need to be done in person. And that's kind of what I was referring to. Great. Other questions? Anybody want to unmute, ask Matt a question? Matt, uh, Rob Denton here in California. Thanks for what you've shared. Um, the, the topic of executive pastor. So I feel like as I've talked to people, everyone has a different definition or what that looks like for them. Um, do you have an executive and what, um, what is that person's responsibilities and how has that helped you if you have one? Yeah, we, we have one and um, uh, we need two of them. And he, he has way more than he probably should have on his plate. Um, right now he is, uh, he works primarily with staff at my direction uh, when it relates to keeping them on task and goals that we create. So we use that axiom of six by six, uh, six things that you need to accomplish within six months. It's uh, an old Bill Hybels idea, um, but it's, but it's not something he stole from business. Uh, and uh, he, he works through those kinds of things. He works through, uh, you know, if we recognize that there needs to be a reposition on the bus uh, for somebody, uh, we just don't immediately pull the rug out, but you know, I kind of say, Hey, this person needs to be moved over here and, and uh, do that gently and, uh, and take your time with it. But yeah, he, he's kind of working at the behest of some of the things that um, I, I am, I'm leading towards. Um, he's working primarily with staff in, in a certain way that I'm not anymore. So I'm not doing check-in meetings weekly with our staff. Uh, I'm meeting only with our lead uh, ministers, our lead team uh, uh, leaders. And uh, he's meeting with staff people as well. And so he, he, he's, he's securing buildings. He is working with operations. It, we, we really need uh, two executive pastors, one to work with staff and the other one to work with the operations of the ministry. Yeah, I, I, uh, I can uh, um, make a comment here also. Luke, uh, Luke's a great executive pastor, um, and, and, and he was developed from within. So tell, tell us a little bit about how that process went in your hiring of Luke. Yeah, Luke, Luke's awesome. Um, a young man that is, you know, really the cream of the crop um, and has been a part of Bethany since the day he was born. And uh, he became an Edward Jones uh, broker. And, uh, I, you know, he was an elder in the church at a young age and took on the responsibility of being chairman of the board and did that so well and was in daily communication with me. Uh, I, I think, you know, you got to be in near daily communication with the chairman of the board. And over that time, he began to take challenges on, take on ministry and realized it was taking up so much of his time that he, and he was finding so much passion in it that uh, he just kind of expressed, is, you think this is something that could be happening full-time? And it was like, well, I don't see how we, we can't now. You've made a full-time position out of it. And uh, yeah, he's been developed from within. He's phenomenal. He loves, the, he loves the place and the people, which I don't know where you get that immediately in someone that you'd hire in. 
uh, but when you hire when you hire out, but when you hire from within, uh, you don't have to give them the culture. They already know the culture. And uh, he's been able to do amazing things just because he loves the people in the place. Great. Uh, Rob Thomas, you've got a question. You want to unmute and ask Matt a question? I think you're still muted, Rob. It's in yeah. the chat. Or I can read it for you if you're struggling oh. with your button. Yeah, go ahead, Renee. There we hey, go. Oh, oh, there, there. Go ahead, Rob. Simple button thing. <laughs> Should have had a kindergartner nearby. Um, I was just wondering about your uh, strategy for outside your doors and the impact that you guys have made in, in your town. We're from a smaller town, too, so uh, very interested in that. Are you, are you speaking in relation to um, evangelism? No, no, what would the town be like if you weren't there? What kind of impact have you made in that? In that? Oh, Rob, it would be hell if we weren't here. <laughs> That's what I want to know about. <laughs> um, you're saying, hey, would it, if we were gone tomorrow, would anybody recognize it? Which I think is a great question that I ask myself a lot. Uh, yeah, we would definitely be missed. Um, we now have become a major player with our community in, in all three of our communities that we're a part of, um, where we have made it um, a priority to... Uh, be on the radar with the people in politics, though we're not political. Um, we, we are now seen as a, as a voting block and uh, something to be reckoned with when it comes to politics. Um, so they, they, they're very kind to us in a lot of ways and ask for our direction and help. Um, and not just in spiritual matters, in, in all sorts of areas. Um, you know, schools across, the, uh, across our community would, would definitely miss us as we bring an impact to our schools through uh, providing mentors and spiritual advisement to um, our teachers and just bringing help and, and encouragement across the board to all of our schools that are here. Hey, I think it's easy for a church to make an impact in a small town. And, um, you know, it just as a matter of caring for your community and meeting their needs. And the thing that we did at the beginning that was wrong early on in my ministry, we thought we knew the needs of our town, uh, presumptuously, but we didn't really meet their needs. We just assumed their needs. And once you start talking to administrators or once you start talking to council people, or if you start talking to those that are first responders even, or in the medical community or um, child protective services, you start learning what the real needs of your community are. And then you can become the effective church to meet those needs. Uh, and that doesn't matter what size you are. And it doesn't matter what community you're in. Um, and I think a lot of us have gone about it the wrong way. We, we, we start all these ministries and put all this resourcing and energy and effort into something. And then we wonder why our community is not responding. It's because they didn't care. They didn't need it. And uh, I think you got to go back to your community and find out the true, true needs of your community and, and start all over there. Rob, that probably didn't help you. Matt, you've been a model in two areas that I think it would help the guys to hear about. One is longevity. You you uh, started out, I think, as a youth minister in the Bethany Church, and you've transitioned your leadership through the years, but you have a real demonstrated heart for that community, for your church. I know you've been approached about moving. You've kept your feet planted, and you've seen the potential there at Bethany, and you've developed it. And this, this, so your longevity, I, I'd like to hear you talk about Kind of what's kept you planted there. Yeah. Second, hey, go ahead. Secondly, uh, 
is um, the uh, is how you've uh, transitioned in your in your role because you you have intentionally changed your profile leadership profile in that church and that has helped the church progress to the next level to the next level. Yeah, let me start with uh, setting the record straight about the youth ministry thing. I came in as a I came in as an intern, yet I had no one to intern under. They didn't have a pastor. Intern just meant pay status. And uh, I came in as an intern, but I never had experienced a small church. I, w- I grew up in Fullerton, California, in a large church. And, um, and someone said, before you head back, why don't you get the small church a chance? And I said, I'll give it a summer. And uh, they, they brought me in as an intern for uh, youth and children under, under no direction of any supervision, nothing. And uh, they were going through a split at the time, and they didn't tell me that. And so uh, at the end of the summer, I was going to go back and finish up a semester school. And they asked me to become the senior minister. And I fought that. And you guys have probably heard me say this before. My story is the story of Jonah, except for I have a chapter five and it's turned out pretty well. But I fought that all along the way where God, I I, I know he swallowed me up and spit me out in Southern Indiana. And that felt that way at times. And I fought that call and fought it for at least a good three years uh, at Bethany. And, uh, but it probably took three years for me to, to uh, have some pride leave my body, and I think that's what God needed in me was just to say, "Hey, listen, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna minister here whether you want to or not." And uh, sometimes you're forced to minister, and sometimes you're you go willingly. I was forced. I felt like, and I, I think that's one of those things that leads into this this dynamic of longevity. Is after God grabbed a hold of my heart, He He forced me to see these people for who they really were. Mm-hmm. and uh, they weren't number one backwards. Uh, rural didn't mean backwards. As a matter of fact, uh, these people are, are the salt of the earth. Uh, I've never met any peop- anybody quite like these folks that I know in Southern Indiana, and um, uh, the creativity, the uniqueness, um, they just go, maybe just go about it a little differently than the way I was raised, and, uh, but that's not a bad thing. It's actually taught me some things. Uh, the longevity is there uh, because there is so much that God has left to do in taking uh, domain for his, his kingdom here. And uh, it, it's evident as we start to plant these campuses and they start to fill up almost like uh, these people have come out of their homes uh, looking for food and water because they've been so deprived. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are communities that have churches, uh, but they're not preaching Christ. And once the name of Jesus is proclaimed and the gospel is given and true freedom of salvation is found, it is the most remarkable thing to see these folks in their 60s and 70s who are coming to find the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they've been in church their whole life. And uh, God's doing something very powerful in these in these towns. And I think, Ken, you know, you talked about my leadership style of change. I think at one point you're called, you know, this is my own thing here. I think at one point you're called to people, maybe you're called to a place. And then at some point you're called to a position. And uh, I've gone through all those different forms of being called to people and then called to a place regionally. And then now I think I'm just called to a position. I don't know what life would be like if I, if I weren't a pastor, especially a lead pastor. It's just how I'm built. I don't think I can do anything else in, in the world but this. And I think that's how God has designed me and made me. And that's where he wants me. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of changing that model of leadership, you just got to let go of some things and, uh, and, you know, bringing that level of, of delegation 
Um, you know, I think it, you know, there, what are the five, the five levels of leadership, uh, uh, authoritarian, uh, uh, I think it's, it's being a participant with others and kind of being like a coach a player delegate, being a delegate and handing responsibilities out. Uh, there's, there's uh, trans transactional leadership where it's a give and take, uh, you want something from them and they want something from you, but then there's transformative leadership. And transformative leadership is the leadership that Jesus calls us to, which is the leadership that says, I, I, will be, I will be humble and I will be last so that others can move ahead and so that the organization can move forward. And when you find yourself there humbling yourself, and I'm not saying that I'm a humble guy, um, I, I've, just, I've just learned that people can do it better than I can. And there's been points in my leadership where I thought, I, I'm not needed, but I'm wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to affirm you, you do have that confident humility or that humble confidence that is critical for level five leadership. You, you have it in spades, brother. One final question for you, Matt. I know you uh, grew up in the restoration movement. You believe in the movement. Where do you see the future of the restoration movement from your seat? Man, I, I, I hate to be so like a cavalier, but I think we're the hope of the world. Um, and, and not the movement, not the, you know, I don't want to get into the whole, you know, only our way. But what we bring, the, the principles of what we bring to um, uh, church it, biblically, I believe are the hope of the world. I mean, when you keep, you know, every single, every single restoration movement church I walk into, there's, there is a, the gospel is preached. And then here's the difference. There's an expectation that it's responded to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Fred Craddock, who I absolutely loved, that he had said there were times when he would preach in the church and, and he would be surprised when people came forward. You know, and I think there's a lot of churches right now that are that way. They're preaching and they may not be preaching a, a, a gospel centric message. And, and they're surprised when people come forward. The Christian church people are coming forward because the gospel is being preached and it doesn't matter how shabbily it's being preached right now. And, you know, some, we have, we have some of the best preachers as well. And I think we have some of the greatest leaders uh, that that church world has to offer. And I'm not just talking in the United States, I'm talking about around the world. Uh, but as it relates to the principles within the restoration movement, we, we have have this ability to do what we want as we want to do it, but yet we stay grounded to the truth in the most part, generally speaking, we stay grounded to a truth. And I work with a group out of Indianapolis that is um, the, the, the Lilly Foundation. The Lilly Foundation predominantly gives money to uh, denominations. And when they come to a non-denominational Christian church or church of Christ like us, and they hook up the wires, they say, how are you guys growing? You're way too conservative. Uh, you're, 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 you're uh, not you know, pro-gay, or you're not, you're not uh, uh, for all the liberalism that we're finding in these churches, how are you guys growing? And they can't believe it. And, uh, and we will just say, because we just go back to where the scriptures speak, we'll speak, and where God is silent, we'll remain silent. They don't understand all that stuff. They don't understand how, how someone can stand in the pulpit and speak out for traditional marriage or speak out for, and, and people will be drawn to that. But I think, you know, as, as Christ is lifted up, men will be drawn into him and and, and people know the truth when, when it's spoken. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there is so many advantages to being in the, the, the restoration movement and being a part of a, of a tribe that is not dictated to, but is under this giant tent where we get to 
to be around leaders that are, are, are just moving things forward like we've never really seen before in probably 40, 50 years. Yeah, I, I, um, I agree. It's a great time to be in the restoration yeah. movement, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, just the, all the things that we've seen at Solomon here this last five or six years with uh, all of our African-American non-instrumental yeah. friends. Uh, and uh, we recently had a board meeting in Florida where we visited uh, several Hispanic uh, churches that we're working with and uh, <clears throat> just try to better understand what, what they're going through. And uh, I just think, uh, I think the restoration movement's best days are in front of us. There's no yeah, doubt. Doug, let me, let me just say, because, and you know, you know my heart on this one, Solomon and you have been pivotal in, in identifying um, our African-American restoration movement roots. To, to, and and, and the, the, the split off and trying to bring that back together again. And I, I see us, especially with uh, the black congregations, Latino congregations, and just saying, you know what, we're all coming together. And all this divisiveness that either once have been is no longer. And we, we're just going to take domain for the king. And uh, we're going to put all this crap behind us. And we're just going to go and we're going to put pro proclaim Jesus Christ. I think we are on the cusp, on the cusp of doing something absolutely amazing that the world will recognize as it relates to the unity that can be found um, in the United States through the restoration movement.